All right, good morning, Portico. How's everybody doing? Great, great. Thank you for coming to God's house to worship with us today. Uh, like you said, my name is Andrew Owen. I'm one of the elders here at Portico. Um, this is not what I do full-time, though. I'm in one of the army bands. I dress up like George Washington and play the fife for a little tricorn hat with a wig. I thought about wearing that this morning so I would feel a little more comfortable, uh, but figured that might be a little bit of a distraction, so opted against that. Um, it's awesome to be up here uh, diving into God's Word with you. Um, it's also awesome because um, I get to give Nate Wagner, our head pastor, a break. Um, he's not here this morning. He's spending some quality time camping with his family, so it's great to be able to give him some quality time with the family. Um, so last week, if you were here, we started a new series on Hebrews. Um, Hebrews is a very sophisticated, very well-written letter. Um, unfortunately, we don't know who the author is or really who exactly who he's talking to. Um, we know it's an early church, uh, first century, prim primarily composed of uh, Jews that have um, converted to Christianity. They've trusted in Christ as their Messiah. They've gone away from the old covenant ways, the, the old rituals and uh, the old law, the old sacrificial system, and they've trusted in Christ as their Messiah. There would also be a handful of Gentiles and Greeks as the gospel, the good news, begins to spread out to uh, surrounding nations. So the author is trying to push these new Christians into maturity. He's trying to push them into Christ. They don't have a vast knowledge of who Christ is. Uh, he was this ordinary baby that came, was a carpenter. Uh, a lot of his inter interactions were very ordinary, um, and then he was crucified on the cross for them, but they don't really understand exactly who Jesus Christ is. Um, so he's trying to enlighten them, um, cast a light through Christ on the Old Testament. They would have had a a vast knowledge of the Old Testament, um, specifically of the first five books. Um, but he tries to show them that all of that, all of the Old Testament, all the old Jewish rituals point towards Christ. There is um, a theologian that said the Old Testament is like a, a dark, dimly lit room, and you see shadows of Christ. A shadow is a, a great depiction because it shows you that there's an object there. It shows you that there is a, a shadow of a Messiah, of a Redeemer that's going to redeem his people. Um, but it doesn't show you the full story. It doesn't show you all the details of who Christ is. So he's trying to show them through the light of Christ that all of those old shadows, all of those old rituals point to Christ. And in light of him... Those are all obsolete. They point towards Christ. They aren't Christ. So he's trying to push his audience into maturity. He's trying to show them that the old covenant is imperfect. It was temporary. It was God-ordained at the time, but it was ultimately pointing them towards Christ. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Nate opened our, our series discussing the threefold office of Christ. Anyone remember what those are? Boom, prophet, priest, and king. So he, he showed us that Christ was the last prophet, the prophet that points us towards our home. He shows us that uh, Christ was the, the priest, 
the perfect atonement for our sin on the cross that carries us home. And he shows us ultimately that he is our divine king. He is our home. He becomes our home. So you're going to see a lot of those themes continue to pop up throughout Hebrews as we continue to go along. Um, we're going to be focusing on that, that last office today, uh, the divine kingship of Christ. You're going to see a lot of kingly language as we go through. We're going to be going through Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. And the author is going to put down seven quotes, bam, 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 seven times, and doesn't really unpack them. He just shows you them all. He trusts that his audience has a great knowledge of the Old Testament, and he wants them to do the legwork. He wants them to, to ultimately walk towards Christ. He's going to guide them and show, hey, this part of the Old Testament points towards Christ, but he wants them to do the legwork uh, so they can have confidence of their, their hope, their assurance in Christ. So we're going to see this morning, uh, like I said, we'll be focused on the kingly office of Christ. We're going to see that he is the divine king and the only one worthy of our hope and praise. I talked about uh, the, the Old Testament being a shadow of Christ. This early church um, had a tendency of, they were being tempted to go back into these old rituals where they felt comfortable, where they they could um, have a, an assurance of their faith because it, it was what they were used to. But the author is trying to show them that Christ is the perfect mediator. He shines a light on those shadows. And they wouldn't have any more assurance going back to a shadow of Christ than I would of talking to the shadow of a person trying to say, trying to get to know that person through their shadow. It's futile. I wouldn't get to know them at all, and they wouldn't have any assurance of their salvation through the old uh, sacrificial rituals of Judaism. So this morning we're going to see that Jesus is a divine king. He's the only one worthy of our hope and praise. He's the unique son of God, the royal heir, mediator of all creation and eternally divine, and then ultimately exalted at the right hand of God. So let's dive into our text here. We'll be in Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. If you have the same Bible I have, it's on 2361. If not, it's probably up here. All right, Hebrews 1, 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands." They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? All right, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear God, 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. God, as we dive into this word this morning, this text, God, prepare our hearts to receive from you. Open our minds. God, prepare our hearts to be transformed by the power of your spirit. God, prepare our hearts to repent. Prepare them to place our hope only in you, Christ Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. Jesus is the divine king and the only thing worthy of our hope and praise. We see in this first uh, verse, uh, the first set of verses, verses 5 through 9, that Jesus is the, the son, the royal heir of God. He opens up this, this passage with a rhetorical question. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he to me a son. It's a rhetorical question. It, it begs the answer, none. He, no angel had that title. Um, there were times in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and in Psalms where God would refer to the, the angels as sons of God, but never the unique son of God. Jesus alone bears that title. He is, we saw last week in verse 3, that he is the exact imprint of God. He's the radiance of his glory. He alone is the Son of God. In this verse, verse 5, um, ties together uh, two, two passages, Psalm 2 and then uh, 2 Samuel 7, where we see depictions of an exalted king who has inherited the nations. This is Jesus Christ. I want to... Um, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Um, it reminded God's people that he made David and his descendants kings, ultimately to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, where God was going to be a blessing to all nations. So he made them kings. And then in uh, 2 Samuel 7, we actually get that unpacked a little bit. I want to read that for you. I'm not going to read all of these. There's a lot, but I do want to read this one um, because it shows you how Christ fulfills that covenant with David. So 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. This is Nathan the prophet talking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So some of that, that's a poetic expansion of God's covenant with David. Some of that you're going to see fulfilled in Solomon. Um, you're going to see him ruling in wisdom and justice, bringing peace and blessing to God's people of Israel. But then... Jesus never committed iniquity against God. So obviously that can't be a direct depiction of Christ's divinity. 
that, that part is uh, pointing towards Solomon. Solomon fell away from God. He started serving idols, and his de- descendants also broke that covenant. So you see the prophets lamenting the, the fall of the house of David. It, it looked like that, that promise was going to be broken. But the prophets continued to promise a future hope, a promise a son of David whose righteousness would restore the kingdom of Israel, a hope of a new covenant, Jesus Christ. So you see that exalted king who has inherited the nations. Hebrews 1.5 combines those two. Um, it shows you Jesus is the messianic heir of David, the son of God, into whom God has also folded that priestly office. So we talked last week about Christ being the perfect priest, one to atone for all of our sin on the cross. With these two depictions, we see Christ being of the house of David. He's a righteous man without sin. But then we also see him as the the divine son of God, entitled to his throne, entitled to his kingdom, entitled to all his nations. Both of those are essential for his priestly office. Christ's justice demands that human nature pay for the sin of Adam. The price of sin is death. Human nature had to pay that price. So we needed a savior that was of human nature, was of that royal line, was a royal righteous man in the line of David. Christ is that man. But we also needed a divine God. We needed a God that would withstand the wrath the judgment that sin demands. Without those two combined, without the fully righteous man and divine king, we wouldn't have a savior that could pay the price for us, for our sin. So we see in uh, Romans 5, 18 through 19, Paul is talking. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, the sin of Adam, So one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. Christ's atonement on the cross, his priestly office. For as by the one man's disobedience that many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus is that offspring of David. He's that fulfillment of that covenant, of that promise. He's the literal son of God. He's the final and forever king of kings and worthy of our hope and praise. In contrast, you see our author talking about angels. We have the king of kings worthy of our hope and praise, and then he talks about angels. Last week, we heard that angels were glorious. The most common reaction to an angel coming to earth was to fall down on the ground in fear. They were glorious. They were coming directly from God's throne room. They shone with his glory. And they had an instrumental role in revealing the law to Moses. That's why these old Jews were kind of drawn back to them. They, they brought them the law. They were glorious. They, they begged to be worshipped. But we see here, they are commanded in verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels worship him. They're servants. They're messengers of God. They're they're commanded to worship 
the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So as glorious as they are, how much more glorious is Jesus Christ? These are his servants that are being commanded to worship Christ, the King of Kings. And in verse 7, we see that, that splendor being unpacked a little bit more. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flame of fire. These are majestic things. The, the author is personifying elements of the world, fire and wind. It, it made me think, I was a, a Boy Scout growing up, um, and after setting up camp and everything, we would sit around the fire and just watch, uh, watch the, the flames dance around, watch the, the majesty, the beauty of it, and I was a boy, so I probably watched it consume anything I threw in it. Um, but there's an element of, of beauty to fire. Same thing with wind. Uh, my wife, Katen, loves thunderstorms. So in, in the summer, uh, we'll raise the, the windows and listen to the, the sound of the rain and listen to the, the lightning and thunder. It, it's captivating. It's beautiful. It's glorious. But those can also be intimidating. Like if you've ever been by a huge roaring fire or the disciples out on the boat in the Sea of Galilee with Christ, a windstorm comes up and immediately they think they're going to perish. They take their sight off Christ and put it on his elements. And he, oh ye of little faith, you took your sight off me. I'm your anchor of hope. Just as I am sovereign over this, over the elements, over the fire, over the wind, over the lightning, I am sovereign over these angels, as glorious as they appear. I am the final messenger of God. I am the perfect mediator. I am the message. Now this uh, comes from excuse me, um, a creation psalm, Psalm 104, and we see that the Lord God is creator and sustainer of all things. He is sovereign over all those things. In verse 8 and 9, we see, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of uprightness. He is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God the Son, your God, God the Father, has anointed you. You are the royal heir. We see this as a, a messianic psalm. You see this kingly language continue to pop up. God the Father has anointed God the Son. He is his heir. He's the heir to the throne, to the throne room, to his kingdom. His status is far higher than the angels. He is more divine, more glorious, worthy of our hope and praise. Not only is God, Christ Jesus, the heir of the throne and throne room, he is the mediator of all creation. King resting in sovereignty over all creation and internally divine. We see in verses 10 through 12, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Oftentimes when we think of Christ, we think of the incarnate Christ. Jesus Christ as a baby, his life on earth, crucified. We don't think of him always, uh, eternally. He was there at the beginning of creation, before creation. God the Father spoke through Christ by the power of the Spirit and created everything, everything on earth and everything in heaven for his glory. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Not only he created all things, he sustains all things. And one day, ultimately, he will end all creation. A new heaven, a new earth will be formed. He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. This is another distinction between the Creator, Christ, the King of Kings, King of Sovereign over all creation, and his creatures, in this case, the angel. But he is superior to all of his creation. Not only is he eternal, but he is immutable. God never changes. God is the same before creation, all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, today and always. He hasn't changed. His attributes, the same ones that are ascribed to God, are ascribed to him. His love, his holiness, his righteousness, wisdom, power, goodness, mercy, justice, faithfulness, they are all the same, constant. He is a sure foundation for our hope. That is essential. I'm reminded daily as a parent that I'm mutable. I change all the time. My level of Expectation changes, my level of discipline changes. Sometimes I parent out of stress, sometimes I parent out of convenience. As much as I love my kids and as, as constant as I try to be for, from them, I am a sinner in need of a savior that is immutable, that doesn't change, that is secure enough that my hope can be solid in him. I can't be the hope for my kids any more than any other parent could be the hope for theirs. Our hope can only be founded in Christ, the immutable, eternal King of Kings, worthy of our hope and praise. No matter how great a leader is, a human leader is, they will come and go. They are not eternal. They are not immutable. They are sinners just like you and me. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, the context of this uh, verse, uh, the author is showing from Psalm 102. And I don't have time to go through that entirely. If, if you take one thing away from this sermon, please go read that, that chapter. Psalm 102. If you're in a hard season or you've come out of a hard season, it, it rocked my world. It is so encouraging. It, the, the psalmist talks about um, lamenting over human suffering and weakness, but seeing God's faithfulness reverse his suffering in the end. He is eternal. He is immutable. And please go read that chapter.
Psalm 102. He concludes that, that chapter by extolling the Creator, extolling Jesus Christ, who is eternal, infinitely more permanent than the heavens and earth he fashioned. The heavens and earth will wear out and be discarded, but the Creator of ages remains unchangeably the same, and your years will have no end. And in him, our hope remains secure, unchangeable. None, none of his enemies can take that hope away. He doesn't parent out of stress. He doesn't change. Our hope is secure in him. Not only is he superior to the angels, but he is superior to all things created in heaven on earth. He is God. They are his servants. He is creator. They are his creatures. He is infinite. They are finite. He is worthy of our hope and praise as our divine king. And ultimately, Christ is exalted at the right hand of God. We see in verse 13 and 14, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Again, he ends with a rhetorical question. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None. That role is for Christ and Christ alone. He is our divine king, both God and man, He's the only one worthy to sit at his right hand, the only one worthy to be our Messiah, to be our Savior, to restore our relationship with God. And he sits at the right hand, that position of power and privilege, where he continues that priestly ministry. He's continuing to intercede for us day after day. And he's sitting there, sitting, showing a sign that his work on the cross is enough. It is finished. His atonement is sufficient to pay for our sin. We have been forgiven in Christ. And not only forgiven, not only promise a home in Christ, but Christians are referred to as heirs of the kingdom. We have a king that gave up his status in heaven, came down to earth as a human, as a baby, redeemed a people that was rebelling against him actively, sacrificed himself for us so that we could know God, live with him, and not only know him and live with him, he's the firstborn. He's entitled to all of creation, all of the nations, God's throne, God's kingdom. Those are his, but he wants to share it with you. He wants to share his kingdom with you, not only as a, a member in his kingdom, but as an heir, fellow heir, ready to rule alongside with him in his kingdom. <sighs> That's powerful. And not only that, he finishes with, are they not all the ministering spirits sent to serve your sake for those who are to inherit salvation? He sends angels to help with our present ministering needs. God alone is the divine king. He's the only thing worthy of our hope and praise. 
he, the author is trying to push his audience, the early Christian uh, Jews and Gentiles, into Christ. He's trying to push them into maturity so that they place their hope in him, not in the shadows of him, not in the thing that gives false assurance of their salvation, but into the Christ, the divine king, the perfect prophet, priest, and king that is worthy of their hope and praise. Now, what does that mean for us? The same thing. We should be placing our hope alone in Christ, alone in the perfect prophet, priest, and king. But I bet if I brought you in this morning and said, Jesus is superior to angels, I wouldn't have to convince any one of you of that. We have the New Testament. We know that he's superior to angels. But does that mean we don't suffer with the same issues that this early church suffered with? No. As Christians, we take on a new life, a new identity, a new savior, but we constantly have culture trying to bring us back into things we're comfortable with, things we can control. Being a good person, trying to control your destiny, trying to be good enough, trying to earn a better life, trying to go back to things that we can control, things we can manage. We treat Christ almost as a safety net, not as our firm foundation, something to fall back on. We need to anchor our hope alone in Christ, not in our jobs, not in our life, not in our relationships, not in anything except Christ. These finite things cannot bear the weight of our hope, cannot bear the weight of the glory that only Christ alone deserves. And this subtly sneaks into our, our spiritual walk as well, placing more value on a person disciplining you, uh, excuse me, discipling you um, in the word of God versus placing that glory on the word of God. As great as a teacher is, as great as a preacher is, as great as a community group leader is, they are finite. They are not worthy of our hope and praise. Only Christ alone is worthy. They are messengers meant to point you towards Christ. Anything more than that, they will crumble under that hope and pressure. Or this could sneak up in a nostalgic season. Maybe, maybe you've had a great season where you feel God at work, and you're, you're longing for that feeling. That that's a great thing. I'm not trying to diminish seasons where you feel God at work, but God's work is already done. God's work was done on the cross. We look to that for our assurance, not to a season where everything seemed to be falling in place and going well. God's work has atoned for our sin on the cross. We are forgiven in his name. Look to the cross, not to signs of God's present activity. God's present activity is great, but we need to look more to the cross, more to his resurrection in Christ. If we don't feel like he's working, the victory is already won. It is finished. His work was done for us on the cross. He's already atoned for your sin. He was the perfect priest, the perfect lamb, let us fix our eyes on him, press into him, rest in him, so that we can finish this epic journey. 
He is our divine king, worthy of our hope and praise. Let's pray. God, I'm overwhelmed by your gospel this morning. (laughs) The more I dig into your word, the more I realize how much of a sinner I am. How much I need you. How much I need a savior. God, the, the gospel is overwhelming and beautiful. That you would give up your status in heaven, come down to earth as a baby, save a rebellious people, sacrifice yourself so that we could have a restored relationship with God. And not only live with him for eternity in heaven, but be fellow heirs. God, thank you. God, help that to sink in. Help that to really rock our hearts, God. Help it to cause our hearts to turn to you, to repent, to place our hope only in you, God, not in anything of this world. We praise you. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.